This is the Loving Kindness Session, June 2021. Talk three, enlightenment is easy. (laughs) They say that you should make titles that get attention. So this was my attempt at that. I don't know if enlightenment is easy. But I do know that loving kindness or metta is an important practice on the path of awakening. And it is essentially a wish for the ease for ourselves and all beings. May we all be at ease. So in that sense, enlightenment is easy. I hope that's not too tricky. (laughs) Is ease our ultimate destination or goal? Do we get to have the ease after we suffer on the path? There must be a place for ease, as well as effort, as well as skill, as well as peace. How do these fit together? So here's a Rumi poem called Bird Wings. Your grief for what you've lost lifts a mirror up to where you are bravely working. Expecting the worst, you look, and instead, here's the joyful face you've been wanting to see. Your hand opens and closes and opens and closes. If it were always a fist or always stretched open, you would be frozen. Your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding. The two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as bird wings. So go ahead and open and close and open and close your hand and just feel what that's like. And notice how we can engage this activity quite voluntarily. And the same is true for the heart, the metaphoric emotional heart. But quite literally, the heart does the same thing. It's important to note that when our hearts are closed, guarded, we have to honor that to some degree. This practice is not about prying the heart open like an old-timey can opener. And this isn't a practice of force. Our physical heart literally contracts and expands It tightens and it rests. It's called systole and diastole, which are really cool words. And it's completely natural. Just like how flowers open on their own schedule, we can only cultivate around them, create the conditions for their opening. The rest is not up to us. 
I've been observing the bamboo garden here, and there are a couple of new bamboo shoots that are pushing through. They're growing up only. That fist energy is growing them up. And there's one that's twice as tall as it was when we got here a few days ago. But then, at some point, the leaves open out and receive the sun, that open energy. This is another form of that beautiful balance and coordination of bird wings. This can also be found in the two wings of Buddhism, wisdom and compassion. So here at the second full day of a sashin, where you might be experiencing a little turbulence. Do you remember when we flew on airplanes and the pilot would come on and say, we might be experiencing a little turbulence. And that would often be right before some really quite sickening movement happened. <laughs> or when a medical professional says, this might hurt a little bit. <laughs> On the second full day of Sashin, very often compassion is warranted. So what is compassion? It happens to be no different than metta in the sense that it is loving friendliness. It's loving friendliness, same as we have been exploring through the Sashin. But it is not an indiscriminate loving friendliness. It is directed and focused in response to suffering. Compassion arises in response to suffering in others and in ourselves. This isn't pity. Uh, pity is the near enemy of compassion. It's kind of close, but it ain't it. When we encounter suffering and uh, feel sorry for, or feel like we're separate from, or uh, think that that person is somehow less than, that's more like pity. But compassion is knowing that we are in the same boat, side by side. Compassion is not drowning with someone either. Even lifeguards have a little flotation device that they run out and carry with them in order to save a drowning person so that they don't get pulled under themselves. It doesn't help if we too are drowning it also doesn't help if we don't appreciate our own moments of good fortune. Indeed, there's always people who, whose circumstances are dire and refusing to take joy in the moments that might be joyful does not actually help them. So I wanna offer a story of self-compassion and this is from a Korean Zen teacher, a woman Korean Zen teacher, Dai Hang Sunim. Hogan Roshi appreciates this teacher a lot. He quotes from her quite a bit. First, I want to tell you a little bit about her life, though, because it's really inspiring. She is the founder and spiritual head. I don't know if she still is. 
she's deceased, yeah, of uh, quite a few centers um, in Korea and America. She has helped um, lay people and nuns and has had a, a very impressive career as a, as a practitioner. But she was born in 1926 in occupied Korea, uh, at the time occupied by Japan. Her father had been in the Korean military and lived a very comfortable life with his family. And he was part of the resistance to the Japanese occupation. And their life, as they knew it, came to a sudden end when she was eight years old and uh, he was about to be imprisoned and they found out about that they were coming to get him. So they were forced to flee. They left their home. They fled their town with nothing and had to beg for food. They often went hungry and eventually had to wander around in the woods. They built a hut out of mud and bark to live in and uh, was basically a hovel. Uh, the family was starving and her father um, really was unable to hold it together. He became abusive. He became abusive to her and to her mother. And so she avoided him as best she could uh, by venturing out into the forest. She would often sleep in the forest, eight years old. Uh, it said that when they left their home, she didn't even cry. She, she saw very clearly how everything can change in an instant, everything. So it was here in the forest that she had uh, awakening experiences in nature and aligned with the Buddha nature within her. Uh, she thought that her mother was, was eating, uh, maybe when she was gone, but she realized that her mother wasn't eating. She was giving all her food to her children. So uh, she left at nine years old and became a nanny and took care of a baby. And she also did sewing to support herself out of that home. And she did well enough with this. She was able to support herself and do pretty well. But she left this life in her early 20s and became ordained. Um, she became ordained and then returned to the mountains, uh, back to nature, uh, for 10 years before returning to teach. And this is just a very broad brush account of her life, which is uh, deeply inspiring. There are more incredible details, incredible stories about her. I want to share this um, story of self-compassion. And it's even presented as a story. She, she literally starts it, Once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a young man who was uneducated but honest. He worked as a farm servant for a rich man. Every day, he hiked over the mountains from his village to his employer's farm with a heavy pack on his back. His day was long and his work exhausting, but it gave him a lot of time to think, and he never complained. Eventually, however, the young man's situation began to wear on him. He thought about the good food the master's children were eating and the good clothes they were wearing and could not help but compare their lot to his. And he thought about the steep mountain pass he had to travel every day, and tears came to his eyes. Why was his life so hard? He began to feel sorry for himself and to regret his tiresome existence. From that day on, however, the young man began to talk to himself in words like this. 
You have a hard time. Yes, and I'm so tired. How about taking a rest for a while? That's a good idea. In this way, he questioned and answered himself using comforting and sympathetic words and encouraging himself when no one else did. You must understand how lonely, weary, and sorrowful he was. But because there was no one else to do it, the young man became his own friend. A friend is a wonderful gift. Friends share their sorrows and their accomplishments. They enjoy life together, and the best friend to have is yourself. For even between husband and wife, even between parents and children, there can be misunderstandings. Isn't that the truth? But if you are your own friend, then there can be no misunderstandings. The young man began to be kind to himself. He comforted and encouraged himself. Sometimes he cried with exhaustion and despair, but he no longer felt completely alone. Now the young man was endlessly grateful to himself. He began to accept the conditions of his life, and as he did so, life became clearer for him. He began to feel more at ease. He did not realize how much he was being encouraged to press on. He felt happiness and lightheartedness despite his heavy workload. Still, he did not comprehend the identity of his friend. This friend he discovered was his Buddha nature. One day he realized who it was and attained enlightenment. Thereafter, he traveled far and wide teaching the Buddha Dharma. So obviously this story is about, is, is autobiographical. But we often have a mistrust of compassion. Is that where the real practice is, right? Real practice should be hard and painful. Sometimes it is hard and painful, and that can be quite rich. The vigorous practice has its place, its important place. Non-avoidance, non-grasping, willingness to let go of comfort, to challenge our limitations. This is an important aspect of practice. And this can sometimes be preferred or favored over the ease that is also our genuine life experience, just as much as difficulty. So what good are we to others if our minds are roiled in turbulence, fear, and anxiety, agitation? The Buddha recommended metta practice for these very circumstances. How can we meet our infuriating relatives whose political views differ so completely from our own if we're not able to wish ease and peace to our own big toe? <laughs> so we need to be skillful and we need to be peaceful. The Metta Sutta points us to all the ingredients, two of which are skill and peace. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Well, that's a very good starting place. So I want to open that up a little bit. How can we be that one skilled in goodness who knows the path of peace? So what is the skill? Maybe figuring out and doing things that are good for you. 
wholesome, beneficial, harmless, healthy for you and for others. Skill also means learning skills. Things that you were once maybe not so good at, now you're good at, like reading or music or language or sports or a job. Buddhist scholar Andrew Olensky did a wonderful line-by-line look at the Metta Sutta. And in this he says, becoming good at anything also involves knowing what we're aiming at, what we're aspiring to. The Buddha is guiding us toward an understanding of what will be of greatest value. Learning to recognize what is of most benefit rather than what might be merely alluring or gratifying is by no means an easy skill to develop. So it's kind of like the skill of discernment is what he's talking about. Perhaps we can learn how to be a good person, how to feel content, learn how to aspire to and work toward the most evolved and fulfilled state a human being is capable of. Surely if this were the case, it would require, like every other sort of learning, making some sacrifices, applying oneself to the training with energy and enthusiasm and repeating over and over again some basic skills as more complex skills gradually develop. So here in our practice, let's just be real about this. It takes time. It takes repetition, just like anything. We might have high aspirations that become demoralizing if we start comparing ourselves without the optimism and faith and adding that to our actual practice, our showing up. We have to practice. And we can only be where we are. In the book, The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron, it's sort of a recovery program for creative people. And she, she talks about the um, comparing mind and how, how dangerous it is for artists and creative people. And she says, you know, to aspiring filmmakers, don't compare your first film to Star Wars. Compare your first film maybe to George Lucas's first film, which was probably looked like somebody's first film. So this practice that we're doing here is a skill very much like others. And so I thought, well, what would be a really unlikely skill for me to learn if I wanted to? So what if I left here and I went to a week-long pole vaulting workshop? I would probably have a really unpleasant time if I thought I was going to clear a 15-foot bar in that week, right? It would be funny. (laughs) But what if I really, really wanted to learn how to pole vault? What would I need to do? What would be the steps? Is it impossible? Actually, no. It's not impossible. Of course not. I went to the internet and I found out it's not impossible. (laughs) So uh, on the website Quora, where you can just ask anybody a question and anybody will answer, right? There are quite a few answers, answers, but basically they boil down to this. 
you know, question, why is pole vaulting hard? <laughs> what is the best way to master it? So the answer is, it all depends on where you are in the process. Because you could look at vaulting as a series of steps that eventually lead you to the pros. But all of that hard technical stuff can only really be taught by experience, coaching, and trial and error. Experience, coaching, and trial and error. And so of course, with an internet search, I found a totally inspirational exemplar. An 86-year-old woman from Vermont named Flo Fillion Meyer, Myler, in 2019, when she was 84, she competed at the World Masters Athletics Championships in Poland that year, and she won the gold medal in pole vaulting. This achievement is not at all diminished by the fact that she was the only woman competitor for the pole vault in her age group. <laughs> because she also won gold medals in the high jump, the pentathlon, 60 meter hurdles. Hurdles, people! <laughs> and of course, the pole vault. She won silver medals in the long jump and the triple jump and another gold medal in the uh, four by 200, or yeah, 200 meter relay. So the, and her quote about that, the four of us ladies in our 80s set a new world record. Can you imagine? <laughs> so the thing about Flo Myler is that she has been an athlete her whole life. She was a competitive slalom water skier, which I didn't even know was a thing. Competitive slalom water skier since her 30s. And she said that that had been part of cultivating the core strength required to pole vault. So she's been cultivating that strength since her young adulthood. She took up pole vaulting at age 65. She works out six days a week. And when her aging was starting to cause her some hamstring problems, she started stretching, taking more and more time in her, uh, her, her uh, regimen. So twice a day, she stretches at the beginning of the day, the end of the day. And her coach, there's a little video about this, her coach was interviewed and, and said, literally, quote, she pretty much structures her entire life around being a fantastic athlete. So it would be ridiculous for me to expect myself to be able to walk out of here and just do a pole vault, not without training and dedication. What is required is doing daily practices that incline the body to this activity. I could make that my goal. The thing about this practice is that we don't practice for some other time, for some event, for some meditation Olympics or loving kindness Olympics. It's now. When the need arises in front of you, it's here. So a family member in crisis calls, it's time to answer that call. And some of our lay practitioners here uh, are in the middle of doing that very thing. So one important difference between the physical athletic training and this mind training, mind and heart training, is that in training the mind and heart, the path is the goal. It is not somewhere else. So this session is about this worthwhile activity 
this worthwhile ability to open the heart, to see the truth, to befriend ourselves and the world. These are great aspirations. It's important to hold these goals a bit more loosely. So aspirations and realistic expectations. I want to share a little more from Daihang Sunim. She says... The more you try to grasp things, the more elusive they become. Then the mind becomes gloomy. But if you put down your grasping mind, your aim comes naturally. This is the wonderful truth. Once upon a time, a person set out in search of spring. Although he searched and searched, he could not find it and returned home. There he found fruit hanging on the branches of his apricot tree. He found spring in his own garden. If you go out to seek enlightenment, you will not find it. If you wait for it silently, you will find it close at hand. Enlightenment does not come from anywhere. Enlightenment flowers within you. The true practitioner does not follow the horizon, for he knows the horizon will always be unattainable, visible, but out of reach. The true practitioner does not say, tomorrow, tomorrow, or even enlightenment, enlightenment. Attachment to enlightenment is still attachment. Human beings always expect something great to be far away, but everything is near, right here, not far away. Most people are not content with wasting today. They go on wasting time and energy with dreams of tomorrow and the days that follow. We do not live in tomorrow. We cannot live in another world. We always live in this world, in this moment. Therefore, do not expect to attain enlightenment. Just do your best today, this moment. Just do your best today, this moment. When we teach people the meta practices, moving through the phrases, beginning to include the most difficult people, one thing I notice is that these just good-hearted practitioners will inevitably try to take on the most difficult person that they can think of right off the bat. And it's quite laudable to go straight to this goal with their baby deer legs, loving kindness, going to go after Godzilla. <laughs> So like, I'm supposed to take care of the whole world. I'm supposed to save all beings. How am I, should I invite everybody to my house? How should I, can I, how am I supposed to love that person who is abusive to me? To love everybody as much as my own child? There's another wonderful quote. There, in the Metta Sutta, you know, even as a mother protects with her life, that can be a little challenging, can't it? Bhante Gunaratna, in his book Loving Kindness in Plain English, says, when we sincerely wish all living beings to be well, happy, and peaceful, 
then we are well, happy, and peaceful. The Buddha taught that we can cultivate boundless metta. Our metta is not limited by time or place. It extends to infinity and eternity. This does not mean we must go around the world physically protecting every living being. That would be impossible. It means we should protect our own metta, just as a mother protects her only child. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, should one cherish all beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies, downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. He says, your metta is your child. Protect it, just as a loving mother would protect her only child. When obstacles arise, don't give up. Keep your good heart open. Bancho shared a little bit of a story by Thanissaro Bhikkhu that another translation of loving-kindness is goodwill. And I like that. I like that translation. It's a little less huggy, you know, cuddly. You don't have to be cuddly to everybody. And so uh, Thanissaro Bhikkhu shares a story about his teacher, Ajahn, Ajahn Fuang, uh, about a time when a snake got into his hut. And whenever the teacher came into his hut, the snake would slip behind a cabinet. And so these two lived together in that hut like this for about three days. He left the door open, just hoped that the snake would leave, but it didn't leave. Finally, on the evening of the third day, as he was sitting in meditation, he addressed the snake quietly in his mind. He said, look, it's not that I don't like you. I don't have any bad feelings for you. But our minds work in different ways. It would be very easy for there to be a misunderstanding between us. So there's lots of places out in the woods where you can live without the uneasiness of living with me. And as he sat there spreading thoughts of metta to the snake, the snake left. This is a non-attached loving kindness. <laughs> Goodwill that is possible towards those who would rather you not actually nurture them and hold them close. Or those who, for whom that might be dangerous to them or to you. So it's a goodwill that allows each of us, that each of us are ultimately responsible for our own happiness. May you be at ease over there. So rather than starting with the loving kindness to the most difficult person in your life, as Bansha was saying to our group Sansa, and maybe start with loving kindness to the people on your sidewalk, the people in the park, all the dogs, your beloveds, the grasses and trees, to yourself, to your feet, to your heart. Start where you are. Where else would you start? I have another beautiful sharing about this ability to cultivate loving kindness. We're going to start where we are and cultivate loving kindness from Dying Sinim. We must cultivate our flowers in good soil. When the conditions are right, flowers open by themselves. The gardener cannot make them open. But on the other hand, if the gardener takes care to fulfill the plant's needs, it will flower naturally of its own accord. 
No matter how well you care for a non-flowering tree, it will never produce flowers. Nor will a dead tree, no matter how much you water it. A gardener doesn't create flowers. He nurtures their natural tendency. The ability to make flowers has always been there. The ability to attain enlightenment is within us, just as the ability to flower is within the tree. People have seen trees produce flowers, so they know this is possible. I suppose they flock to enlightened masters to assure themselves that enlightenment is possible. But the ability to attain enlightenment is present in all people, not just in the ones who have done it. Just as the ability to flower is present in all flowering trees, not merely the ones that have already blossomed, plants can flower again and again for many seasons. Human beings are the same. They live life after life, but they forget all about their previous lives. We know that human beings have great powers of evolution, though each one varies slightly according to the life he lives. That power of evolution is nothing other than Buddha nature. She also says, do not abandon your daily life and become enraptured in the search for enlightenment. Just live a good life and nurture the flower of enlightenment within you. If you live like that, your life will be your practice. In fact, leaving home to live in a temple is hardly different from living at home. If you clear your mind, you are leaving home and living in a temple in the mountains. This is what should be done. Some very skillful words. And what about the path of peace? The Buddha's own discovery of the path included veering off of it a few times. He and a group of other ascetics practiced a voluntary deprivation, forceful, subjugating the body, purposefully imposing austerity and discomfort, very, very, very little food, living without shelter or clothing, and as much discomfort as the body could take without dying. He was so malnourished that he became emaciated and he said he would fall over whenever he would urinate or defecate. He did this for six years. At some point, he responded to this, not with any conclusion, but with a question. Might there be another way to enlightenment? And then he recalled a pleasurable moment as a child under a rose apple tree. It was said to be a beautiful spring day maybe like today. It was the first day of plowing, which was a ceremonious occasion in India, also very hot. So the Buddha was a child. He toddled off from the activities and found some shade under a rose apple tree. And in the telling of it, he specified that this pleasant environment was quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful mental qualities. Here he was able to reach the first jhana, uh, jhana states of mental function that are reached through concentration meditation, sometimes translated as absorption. So when he recalled this, these circumstances in this restful shade tree, he wondered, could that be the path to awakening? 
Following on that memory came the realization, that is the path to awakening. I thought, so why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? Why am I afraid of that pleasure? So it's basically pleasure that's not fueled by greed, is what he's saying. Why am I afraid of that? I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. But that pleasure is not easy to achieve with a body so extremely emaciated. Suppose I were to take some solid food, some rice and porridge. So I took some solid food. Think, uh, now five monks had been attending on me thinking, if Gautama, our contemplative, achieves some higher state, he will tell us. But when they saw me taking some solid food, some rice and porridge, they were disgusted and left me, thinking Gautama, the contemplative, is living luxuriously. <laughs> he has abandoned his exertion and is backsliding into abundance. It's important to note in some versions of this story, uh, says that although the Buddha sat under the tree for hours, that the shade of the leaves did not move at all throughout the day. They continued to shade him. And some of these stories mention a goddess who was embodied in this tree. And in her nurturing gesture, in this encounter with the divine feminine, the Buddha's first meditation was supported by a tree goddess. So we might have the voices of the Buddha's companions in our heads. Now you've abandoned your exertion and you're backsliding into abundance. So we might hear those voices. But we can also maybe ask the tree goddesses to chime in. Go see what they have to say. So today, why not explore your own direct experience of peace, of ease. Maybe after some physical activity or the focus of mental activity or some emotional activity, when that runs its course, just notice in your direct experience any settling of the mind and body. We can notice that contraction of focus and relaxing. And this is no less than the very pulse of life. Or just go talk to a tree goddess. This is such a wonderful koan, effort and ease. Being both carried by the river and moving our arms and legs. So I have one more story, and uh, this is from great teacher Arnold Lobel from Frog and Toad Together. And this story is called The Garden. I don't need my glasses for a kid's book. It's a nice big print. The Garden. Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. 
What a fine garden you have, frog, he said. Yes, said frog, it is very nice, but it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said toad. Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, asked toad. Quite soon, said frog. Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and said loudly, now seeds, start growing. Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, Now seeds, start growing! Frog came running up the path. What is all this noise? he asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. You are shouting too much, said Frog. <laughs> These poor seeds are afraid to grow. My seeds are afraid to grow, asked Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out his window. Drat, said Toad. My seeds have not started to grow. They must be afraid of the dark. Toad went out to his garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. Then they will not be afraid. Toad read a long story to his seeds. All the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad read poems to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad played music for his seeds. Toad looked at the ground. The seeds still did not start to grow. What shall I do, cried Toad. These must be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. <laughs> then Toad felt very tired and he fell asleep. Toad, Toad, wake up, said Frog. Look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you were right, Frog. It was very hard work. <laughs> so I don't know if enlightenment is easy. I am pretty sure it requires us to do the groundwork, to cultivate the soil, to care for our practice like a gardener or a parent or a friend, with skill, with peace, perhaps with ease. Thank you.